I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 11, Genesis chapter 11. We'll be looking at Genesis 11 and 12, so you'll want a Bible. The guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back if you need one. Then get their attention. And those Bibles are marked at the beginning part of Scripture, your Bible, in Genesis 11. Often when we have a problem... We try one solution after another until we finally hit on the answer, hopefully. We may not know the answer to that health issue or the problem going on with our car or that difficulty with our child. And so we seek advice and we try various things in hopes that the problem will be fixed. But you know, God never has to try things in order to see if they work. He, of course, knows what works and what doesn't. But he doesn't always provide the solution at the very beginning. Instead, he often provides a number of scenarios before he gets to the answer. I pointed out last week that it's in part because God wants us to see the need for the solution that he provides. And so he eliminates other possibilities first. Now, God had announced in chapter 3 of the opening book of the Bible, Genesis that the solution to the problem of sin and all of its consequences would come through a member of the human race, the seed of the woman. God, when he was pronouncing consequences to the participants in that first human sin, said, among other things, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. When Adam and Eve then had their first child, Cain, they must have wondered, is he the one who's going to come through the seed of the woman? But you may remember, God rejected Cain's self-centered worship. God accepted Abel's God-centered worship. And so the second child, Abel, is perhaps the one. But we know that Cain killed his brother, ending that possibility. The Bible says that God supplied a replacement, as it were, for Abel. At the end of Genesis chapter 4, we're told Eve gave birth to a son and named him Seth. And Seth's name means granted saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. So now maybe Seth is the chosen one, the one who will come through the seed of the woman. But the next chapter, chapter 5, lists the chronology of the first man, Adam, through this new son, Seth, and those that came after Seth. And the list has some notable features to it. After each of the names given in chapter 5, there's a pattern of at such and such age he had a son. And after that he had other sons and daughters. He lived for X number of years. And then here's the phrase, and then he died. And the refrain, and then he died, included the first man Adam and his son Seth and the line of Seth that's listed in chapter 5 continues that morbid roll call saying over and over again, and then he died, until it goes all the way up to a descendant of Seth's named Noah. And the genealogy ends with Noah, and now hope is turned to him as perhaps the seed of the woman who's going to be the answer to sin. The world has become so wicked by this time that God destroys all life in a flood, a flood of judgment, 
sparing only Noah and Noah's wife, his three sons and their wives. Eight people start the human race all over again. But with that fresh start, there's fresh hope. Noah is the second Adam. And God, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 9, repeats the mandate that he gave Adam in chapter 1. But this new beginning ends, unfortunately, in disaster. Because at the end of chapter 9, we find Noah drunk and naked in his tent. And matters are made worse by the treachery of one of Noah's sons, Ham, who exposed his father's shame to his other two brothers, Japheth and Shem. So we're still looking for the seed of the woman through whom the answer to sin will come. Chapter 10 provides a listing of some of the descendants of Noah's sons, Japheth and Ham and Shem. And it ends with Shem. In order to focus now on Shem's line as having the possible promised seed. And where we begin in chapter 11 today focuses on the Shemitic or the Semitic line. Now I want to quickly point out some features of this genealogy in chapter 11 through the line of Shem. Some of these features will become important later in the message. In fact, one scholar says this, the pattern of the genealogy in chapter 11 is parallel to the one in Genesis chapter 5. Both lists have 10 names. Now, in the genealogy in chapter 11, you need to supply Noah's name, which is implied there, in order to have the list of 10 names. But both lists then have these 10 names, and the last name person on each list has three sons in chapter 5 and in, in chapter 11. And back in chapter 5, the list ended with the sons of Noah in this order. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now notice that Shem, whose line we're going to consider in chapter 11, is listed first in chapter 5. Now here in verse 26 of chapter 11. Notice who is listed first. Abram, then Nahar, and Haran. Now, Abram is not the oldest of the three. In fact, verse 26 says that Abram's father, Terah, was 70 when he became a father. You see that? Verse 32 says that Terah was 205 when he died. And that Abram was about 75 years old when that happened. If you look at chapter 12 and verse 4, it tells us that Abram was about 75 And that marker, that time marker, is at the time that his father died in this city called Haran. Now, if you do the math, Abram was born when Terah was 130, 60 years after Terah's firstborn when he was 70. So if Abraham is listed first, then, then why is that? He's not the firstborn, but he's listed first in verse 26 of chapter 11. And the reason is to position him in the same place as Seth back in chapter 5. Because as we still look for the seed of the woman through whom the answer of sin will come, it's now going to focus on Abram. And included in the list of Abram's ancestors in verse 14 of chapter 11 is someone that we noted last week. Chapter 11 and verse 14. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber, 
Now, I noted last week that Eber is the name from which we get our word Hebrew. So Abram's ancestors include Shem and Eber, making Abram a Shemite or a Semite and a Hebrew. Abram then will be the father of the Jews, the Hebrews, the Semites. And there will be anti-Semites or anti-Semitism in the years to come. But here God is setting the stage for forming through Abram a new nation that we will eventually know as Israel. Now, also, as you compare the list in chapter 5 with the one in chapter 11, Old Testament scholar Alan Ross says this, one additional descendant was added to each list, and each proved to be an antagonist to the nation Israel. To Ham was born Canaan, and he was singled out for special, negative, cursed attention at the end of chapter 9. And to Haran in in, uh, chapter 11 was born Lot, who became the father of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And as you read on in the story of Genesis, you will find that the Moabites and the Ammonites were always in opposition to Israel. So the two lists can be compared, but they can also be contrasted because they differ in at least one important respect. That genealogy that we're looking at in chapter 11 differs from chapter 5 in that it does not close with the, and then he died, because chapter 11 has a different emphasis. Chapter 5 stressed that death prevailed in the human race. But in chapter 11, verses 10 to 26, it stresses a movement away from death and toward the promise that God is still looking to fulfill. And it stresses life and expansion. The tone of the list then is different. It actually starts with Shem, who was blessed, and it concludes with Abram, who was called to receive the blessing. The line that possessed the blessing flourished for centuries under God's good hand. And chapter 11 then and verse 27 picks up the story of Abram. Take a look with me. Verse 27 This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahar, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahar both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahar's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Now, you may notice, just as an aside, but kind of an important aside, that I pronounced the son of Terah's name, Haran, differently differently from the town in which Terah died, Haran. And that's because they're spelled very slightly differently in Hebrew, though almost identical. And many believe that Haran was Terah's birthplace. In fact, one scholar says, perhaps the home of Terah was originally in Haran because many of Terah's ancestors' names are similar to place names 
in the land where the city of Haran was located. So, for example, he has named his son, apparently, one of his sons after this this hometown. If that's the case, then the family had migrated southeast approximately 600 miles to Ur. So Terah is probably from Haran, and at some point he moves his family from there to Ur, in all likelihood for commercial or business reasons. And there his son Haran, according to chapter 11 and verse 28, was born in Ur, and he, and he died there. Now, God's call to Abram initially came then in that city in Ur. And the family then moved back to Haran and settled there where Terah died. Because that was not the promised land. Abram moved on to Canaan. So after all of the failures of the past that have been seen in our series in these opening chapters of Genesis, as God has put forth candidates to be the seed that would be the answer, God is now focusing upon this one man, Abram. So here begins the program that was desperately needed throughout chapters 1 through 11. And one of the purposes for which God put these various candidates out there was in order to show the people what they really needed. Remember what I said, God doesn't always bring the solution when we want it. But he brings it in his time in order for for us to see our need for it. And in the call of Abram, we see a model of how God's people are to interact with their God. And so let's ask God to help us, and then we are going to look at the outline that we have inserted in your program. If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take that out. Let's go before the Lord. Father, we thank you that we can open your word and look at the history of your people and your dealings with them, your gracious dealings with them as with us. As we do this now, Lord, help us to remember that the God who is graciously operating in the affairs of his people is the same God who operates in our lives today. And that the fickleness and the faithfulness of some recounted in this story, are very similar to us as well. And thereby, we we make application of this to our lives in order to bring glory to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, in the story that continues of Abram, and God's call of Abram now, the one that God is focusing on as the possible solution through the seed of the woman that comes through chapter 12. First of all, I say in your outline, we learn that God calls his people out of the world. God calls his people out of the world. Chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, and let me just stop there, had said, past tense, had said when? Well, he had said back when they were in earth. And God had spoken to, to Abram. But the family moved to Haran. And there Terah died. And then it was after that, according to the end of chapter 11, that Abram then moves on to Canaan. So here in chapter 12, we're getting an accounting of what God told Abram back when he was in Ur. And that's why it's worded that way. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, 
and your father's household to the land that I will show you. So God appears to this man. We're going to see his religious background in just a bit. Appears to this man and tells him to do these things. And we see in the story that follows that Abraham did, Abram did that very thing. He left. He left his country, his people, and his father's household. Now, why did he do that? It's the same reason that we obey the word of the Lord to come out of the world. I say in your outline this. We leave because we believe God. Abram left because he believed God. And when we leave the world and sanctify and consecrate ourselves to God, we do so because we too believe God. Now, the word believe, I pointed out to you many times in your Bible, is the word for, for faith or trust. And so we, we leave the world and we leave the things of the world behind making God number one priority in our lives, as did Abram here. We do that because we believe, we have faith, and we trust God. Abram was told to leave his country, his people, and his father's household. But he's told nothing about the land to which he's to go. And so his departure from Ur required an unparalleled act of faith. Consider, Abram was middle-aged, so he's not in the he's not in the prime of life. He's middle aged. He's prosperous in Ur. He settled there, and further, he was thoroughly pagan. But the word of the Lord came to him, and he responded by faith, and he obediently left everything to follow God's plan. And that's why throughout the Bible, it's Abraham who is the model, the epitome of faith. You'll remember that several times in your Bible. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 is quoted in your New Testament. For example, in Romans chapter 4, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abram's relationship to God was based upon the fact that he trusted, he believed, he had faith in, in God. And we're told as well in Romans chapter 4, the promise comes by faith, by believing, so that it may be by grace. To those who have the faith of Abraham. This story at the beginning of the new nation does something in particular for the first readers to whom Moses, who penned it, would have given it. The first readers, you remember, were in Moses' time. And in Moses' time, God's people, Israel, had been captive in Egypt. And now God, with a strong hand, is removing them from Captivity in Egypt and taking them to the promised land, the land that we're going to see he promised to to Abram. And so this story at the beginning of the new nation should mean for Moses first readers that they should trust God, have faith in God, believe in God as they move from Egypt into the promised land. That's how you started, Moses is saying. And that's the God that we serve and that we're called to believe in and trust. And Abram is the model of that. That's why in Faith's Hall of Fame, there are several verses devoted just to this man, Abraham. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, Faith's Hall of Fame, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would, lay, 
to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. He goes to this land that God says, I will show you. And he wanders in that land. A man who owned great wealth in Ur has now left that behind to wander in the land that God has shown him. And Hebrews 11 goes on to say, by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country living in tents. So he was willing to come out of the world and come out of his comfort zone because he believed God, had faith in God, trusted God. Now, when we say, or I say in the outline, that we are to come out of the world, it does not mean that we're isolated from the physical world, the earth, or even its people. But rather, as many of you know, the word world in the Bible refers to the values and allegiances of humanity apart from God. And it's from that that we're to separate ourselves. And that's why over and over again, as you'll read forward in your Bible, God speaks of his people as holy, as set apart. Set apart, different in their worldview, their priorities and their affections. And so God's people are often spoken of in Scripture as aliens and strangers in the world. Abram was willing to give the world up. Take the world, but give me Jesus. We leave the world because we believe God, as Abram did. And in particular, I say in your outline, we leave because we believe God is better. We leave the world. We live differently from the world. We have a different set of priorities and allegiances from the world because we believe, have faith and trust in God. And we do that. We have that faith because we believe something in particular. God is better. Better than what? Well, for Abram, it was better than the stuff he had back in Ur. Terah, Abram's father, and his family served pagan gods. Here's what the Bible says about them. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abram, and Nahar, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. So that was his background. He was an idol worshiper back in Ur. And the names of his wife, Abram's wife, Sarai, and Milcah that we saw back in chapter 11, those derive from titles that mean princess and queen. In Babylonian, Sarai was the name of the wife of the moon god. And Milcah was a name for the daughter of the moon god. And so here you have these two women, the wife of Abram and then the wife of one of his sons. And they are both named after goddesses. But according to Genesis chapter 31 and verse 53, if you're writing it down, Genesis 31, 53, which says, May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahar, the God of their father, judge between us. That's Jacob talking, and he equates the God of Abraham And the God of his father, unnamed but Terah. So Abraham and Nahar, as well as their father Terah, worshipped the true God, according to Genesis 31. So it may be that the knowledge of the Lord was retained in this family, even when they were in Ur. Because remember, they're from the line of Shem. And so it may have been retained, but worship of pagan gods eventually dominated. 
And then with this word that came from the Lord to Abram in Ur, the family together followed the true God and they migrated back to Haran. Thereafter, only Abram continued on to the land of promise. Terah died in Haran. But even with its idolatry and its worldliness, Ur was considered a great place to be, at least in material terms. The site of the great city was first discovered in 1854. And since that time, it's been excavated, revealing much about life in the times of Abram. While the actual period that Abram lived in Ur is a matter of discussion, we can say with certainty that Ur was justified in its boast of being a highly developed civilization. There are ample evidences in what's been found of elaborate wealth, skilled craftsmanship, and advanced technology and science. And all of that tells us something about the city which Abram was commanded to leave. In the words of one scholar, Abraham turned his back on a great metropolis, setting out by faith for a land about which he knew little or nothing and which could probably offer him little from a standpoint of material benefits. The city of Ur was a large population center and has yielded extensive information in royal tombs which have been excavated. The city possessed an elaborate system of writing, educational facilities, mathematical calculations, business and religious records, and art. This points to the fact that Ur may have been one of the largest and wealthiest cities in the Tigris-Euphrates area when Abraham immigrated northward to Haran. So he believed that despite the fact that he was in this cool city, for many people a place to be, that God was better. And that's why the Bible tells us that about Abram. A number of times, again, the Face Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11 tells us Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And it's not just then Abraham who does this, who believes God and believes that in particular God is better. It's not just Abraham who does this, but all of the faithful, those of us who are called to to be believers and follow God, trusting him. And Hebrews 11 tells us that they were longing, they, plural, were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Moses, as an example. Moses, who wrote this about Abram, followed in the footsteps of Abram in his faith and belief and trust in God. And that's why Hebrews says this, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, leaving the world and all of its riches and all of its prestige and all of how hip and cool it is. Instead, it goes on to tell us, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather to enjoy, to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Friends, God calls his people out of the world. We're going to move on, but I ask you to just consider, is the evidence that you are a believer seen in the fact 
that you are different from the world. Different from the world in your desires, your values, your affections, your allegiances. God calls his people out of the world. But secondly, in your outline, God calls his people to follow him. God calls his people to follow him. Again, verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And then it goes on to tell us what else God said. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Now you see that last line there in verse 2. And you will be a blessing. It's not just a statement of fact. In fact, that is written in Hebrew as a command. It's a command. In fact, you could translate it and you are to be a blessing. So verses 1 and 2 give Abram two things to do. The first one is leave, and the second one is be a blessing to others. And we're going to see that Abram followed that. In your outline I say, we obey if we believe. We obey if we believe. So God's people believe God, and they believe God is better. But if, in fact, we believe God, it's going to show up in us obeying God. Verses 1 and 2 tell him to do these two things, leave in verse 1 and in verse 2, for him to be a blessing. And after God promises his protection in verse 3, that I will curse those who curse you, and I will bless those who bless you. We're going to look at verses 4 and 5 in a minute. I just want to say as a quick aside. When verse 3 says, I'm going to curse those who curse you and bless those who bless you, to Abram, who is the father of the Hebrews and the Jews, and ultimately then of the nation of Israel. That is not talking about the nation of Israel that exists today on our political map. And I know that may come as a surprise to some of you, because many of us have been taught that the nation of Israel that was founded, the modern nation that was founded in 1948, is the heir to the promises that are given in the Old Testament. It's not the case. God is once again going to regather Israel, and he is once again going to focus his attention upon Israel. But the nation that's there now is not the Israel of the Old Testament. And here's what that means practically. The Bible does not tell us that whatever Israel wants to do, we must support. Did you know that? Now, I happen to be in support of Israel. And I believe in, as a policy matter, that it's good and it is humanitarian for us to support Israel surrounded by hostile nations. But that's not because the Bible requires us to agree with everything that Israel does. All right, we obey if we believe. And after God promises his protection to Abram in verse 3, he says in verses 4 and 5, So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Now, Abram did then both things God said to do. He was told to leave in verse 1 and verse 4 says he went. 
He was told to be a blessing in verse 2. And verse 5 says he took his wife, his nephew, and notice the people he had acquired in Haran. Now, when verse 5 speaks of the people they had acquired, it probably does not refer to the acquisition of slaves. Because the word people translated there, the Hebrew word is nephesh, which is normally translated souls. And it would not be the word for slaves. So scholar Umberto Casuto says the expression probably refers to proselytes. That is, people who had heard about the true God through Abram. And so apparently already in Haran, before getting to the promised land, Abram was sharing his faith in the Lord. And when he did all of this, when he obeyed God and left, he and his wife, Sarai, were not spring chickens. And yet he did all of this according to verse 4, quote, as the Lord had told him. It's the same thing that we read of Noah when God instructed him regarding the building of the ark. So friends, hear this. Our relationship with God is not only saying, I believe. But it's demonstrating that belief in obedience. Many people say, I'm a believer or I believe in God or I believe in Jesus. The true test of whether or not we really believe, whether we really have faith, whether we really trust. Is whether or not we obey the God we say we believe in. Abraham did that. And not only if not only is it the case that if we believe we obey, but rather, but also we obey continually. I say in your outline, continually if we believe. We obey if we believe, and we obey continually if we believe. Verse six. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, that great tree spoken of as the great tree of Morah is significant. The Canaanites had shrines in groves of oak trees. And Morah was probably one of their cult centers. The end of verse 7 tells us Abram built an altar there. And verses 8 and 9 tell us he did so at other places also between Bethel and Ai. So here's what that's telling us. Not only was Abram obeying, he was obeying in the face of opposition. The Canaanites were there. They had a different religious system. They were already there in the promised land. And he goes and he sets up an altar to the Lord in the area of one of their worship centers. And we're reminded in verse 6 that the Canaanites were there to give us the gravity of what Abram was facing when he obeyed God in that land. Now, friends, this is what that means for us. We do not obey God only when it's convenient. If you're going to proclaim the name of Jesus, and you're going to obey Jesus, it's going to mean you doing stuff you don't like to do. It's going to mean you doing things in the face of opposition because the world is always hostile to truth and to the Lord. And some of you have decisions to make. You've had decisions to make for a long time. I'm not saying this to to beat on you. I'm saying this to be direct with you as lovingly as I can. God has told you to forsake some things. 
And you will not forsake them because you love them more than you love God. God has told you to do some things. And you will not do them because you think that God's commands are optional. Some of you have been wrestling with being baptized. God commands you to be baptized. And your reasons for that, like so many other things that we fail to obey, that the Lord clearly tells us to do, are things like, ah, it's embarrassing. You know, really get dunked in water in front of a bunch of people? Yeah, that's what Jesus says to do. And so you do it. And so I am calling you, not just on that issue, any of you, any of us, who have things that we need to forsake in our lives, who have things that we need to obey in our lives, to understand that God calls us to obey very often when it is not convenient, most often when it's not convenient. And for us to say that I am going to continually believe God, even when I don't like it, even when it's not easy. That's what Abram did. God calls his people out of the world. God calls his people to follow him. And I say thirdly in your Allah, God confirms his promises to his people. God confirms his promises to his people. Verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So here he is now. He has traveled the approximately 1,200 miles, about 600 between Ur and Haran, about 600 between Haran and Canaan. Over these years, he has traveled about 1,200 miles. He is now in the promised land, but it is a land with hostile peoples around him. And God tells him, this is not going to be yours right now. I'm going to give it to your offspring. Now we'll see later that Abram, Abraham will eventually occupy the land in the future, in the still yet future. But at this point, it's going to be your offspring. And in Abram's case, he's going to wander for the rest of his life throughout the promised land. The next couple of verses are going to tell us. But the Lord knows that he needs to be encouraged. The Canaanites live there. He has come all of this way. And it's still going to be a wait. In fact, he's going to die and not receive the promise. And so the Lord appears to him and says, To your offspring I will give this land. The promise is still alive, Abram. Even though it looks bleak. And when God makes a promise... He confirms, he authenticates that promise to his people. Jesus said this, the scripture cannot be broken. What God says absolutely is authoritative and it absolutely will happen. The book of Hebrews says this, this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Now, who were those who heard him? That's the apostles. And God gives confirmation of what it was Jesus had taught and what Jesus had announced in the gospel through the apostles. And the next verse in Hebrews 2 says this. God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. 
So God confirmed what Jesus announced in the good news of the gospel through the apostles and the ability that God gave the apostles to confirm the promises that God made through Jesus in the gospel. And we have that confirmation, friends, through the prophetic word of God that you have in your lap right now. And that's why the apostle Peter, one of those apostles, who was able to perform those miracles and who was one of only three who Jesus called aside in Matthew chapter 17. And the Bible says he transfigured himself before Peter, James, and John. And they were blinded by the sight of his glory. Peter was part of that. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, this same Peter describes that event. And then he says this. We have the prophetic word made more sure. You see, we have the testimony of Peter and the apostles who experienced all of those things. And we have in the word of God the confirmation attesting to all of the promises that God has made. And so, friends, it looks bleak. (laughs) But you have the word of prophecy, the prophetic word made more sure in your lap. God calls his people out of the world. God calls his people to follow him. God confirms his promises to his people. And then last in your outline, God spreads his fame through his people. God spreads his fame through his people. Verse 8. From there, that is Shechem, from Shechem, he went on, did Abram, toward the hills east of Bethel, And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Now, when verse 8 says that Abram called on the name of the Lord, that phrase means he made a proclamation of the Lord by name. Now, I want you to look, take a look at verse 8. And it says he called on the name of the Lord, and notice the word Lord there is all capitals. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now that's a convention that the NIV uses, and other translations use, but the NIV uses to denote the personal name of God. And so you could read there, he called on the name of Yahweh. He proclaimed Yahweh by name. In Canaan, among pagans, he's spreading the fame of his God in God's world. Martin Luther translated the verb called there, preached. There he preached Yahweh. And he made God's fame, Yahweh's fame, known in the face of opposition. Now, he's a Shemite, a Semite is Abram. We've already seen that. The name Shem means name. Shem means name. And do you remember at Babel that we saw at the beginning of chapter 11? That the people said, let us build this religious shrine and let us make a name for who? Make a name for ourselves. And here is Abram. Making a name for God in God's world. 
He's calling God by his personal name in the midst of in the midst of pagans. And in that, friends, we are reminded that everything that you and I are to do and live for is for the sake of the name of our God. You come to your New Testament. And you have the apostles, the first followers of Jesus, and they meet opposition like Abram did and like God's people always do. They met opposition. They were arrested. Acts chapter five tells us that they were arrested and they were told not to preach in Jesus name anymore. Acts chapter five and verse twenty nine. They say we must obey God rather than men. And then it goes on in verse forty one to say this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin. That is the ruling religious council rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. It is why the Bible tells us missionaries are motivated to go to places that are hostile and sometimes dangerous. In our second hour, Brother Nathan is going to speak for us, I think. Nathan, are you out there? I actually haven't seen him yet, but but I believe, I have faith. There he is. He's back there? He's out in the hallway. Cool. All right, good. Nathan's here. So we can live by sight and not by faith. And Nathan and his young family are serving the Lord in China. What motivates somebody to do that? Third John says this. It was for the sake of the name that they went out. For the sake of the name of our God. So friends, how will you, how will I get that kind of motivation that Abram had, and that Nathan has, and that God calls us to have? To spread the fame of our God in his world by living lives that are different and being willing to proclaim with our mouth the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. How will we get that? The top of your outline, the title of this message is Believing is Seeing. We often say seeing is believing. But you see, it's when you believe that you actually see what matters. It's when you believe God and truly trust God and truly have faith in God, you truly see what's important and prioritize what's important. That's what the father of the faithful, Abraham, did. And that's what those who followed his example did. And those of us now who follow that example are looking forward to the city, still in the future, motivated by what we don't see but what we believe. And so Hebrews 11 again says, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And notice this, God has prepared a city for them. God has already prepared the city for them. That is for us as well. And what is that city? Well, the last book of your Bible tells us about it in Revelation 21. Where the Apostle John saw a vision of the end and he says, I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. 
They were looking forward to that. Ultimately, that city, we're looking forward to that city. And that's what motivates us. But Hebrews 11 tells us at the end of that whole list of Abram and Moses and Noah and others, that they were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. In fact, when Abraham died, his only real estate was a cave that he bought for his family's burials. But the last verse in Hebrews 11 says this, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now, stay with me, I'm almost done. But back at the end of chapter 11, when we looked at Terah's family going all the way through Abram, there was a list of eight names given in chapter 11, verses 27 to 32. And then verse 30 of chapter 11 tells us that Sarai was childless. And so if you look at the end of chapter 11 once again, This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahar, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahar both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahar's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and, and notice this last name, Iska. All right. So we've looked at all these names. You know who Abram is. You know who his wife Sarai is. I told you that Sarai was named after the moon god. That Milcah was named after the daughter of the moon god. And then you've got this last name, Iska. And the truth is we have no clue who that is or what her name means. So why does Moses include it there? That gives you a list of eight names. Now, do you remember that I said in chapter 5 and chapter 11, the genealogies both had lists of ten names? Remember that? And now this one is added to make it eight. So that you're still thinking to yourself, where do numbers 9 and 10 come in? Where are numbers 9 and 10 going to come from to round this out? Now, to move the story forward, do you all remember where descendants 9 and 10 come from? They are none other than Ishmael and Isaac. And this was all set up for us to anticipate the need for the seed that God had promised to come through the line to which he had promised it. Because in Genesis chapter 22, God made very explicit to Abram, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And you remember Abram became impatient, the father of the faithful. He had a child named Ishmael, number nine. But then he had the child of promise, Isaac. And then throughout the rest of your Old Testament, Yahweh is called the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And ultimately that line ends through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible says this in 2 Corinthians 1. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Every one of these promises is ultimately fulfilled through Jesus. Now, Jesus has come and all of the promises are not 
fulfilled, but they will be fulfilled and they will all be fulfilled through Jesus. All of the promises are yes and amen in Christ. So here's your take-home truth. God's people live in obedient faith, like Abram did. Here's why. Because God is worth it. Because he is worth it. He is worth more than the junk you have going on. He's worth more than the cool stuff you want to pursue. He's worth more than anything else the world has to offer. And that's what God's people, the faithful, do. Let's ask God then to help us do that very thing. Father, we thank you for the lives of those that you've recorded in Scripture that are examples for us of people who believe and therefore see. They have faith, they trust in you, and therefore they see life as it truly is. And they see what's truly important. And as a result, they are willing to forsake lesser things and to pursue what's most important, what's most valuable, namely you and your promises. We thank you for giving us the life of Abraham. Lord, it is only because of you and your grace working in him that he became what he became. It is only, as the great apostle says, by the grace of God that I am what I am. And so, Lord, we give you the honor and the praise for all that you have accomplished in us to this point. And we ask you, Lord, to give us eyes of faith, of belief, of trust, to be able to see you as you truly are and your promises for the value that they truly have. And thereby, may we be willing to forsake all but you in order to have you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.